Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, it was not all that long ago that mankind was not entirely certain of how high it could go without a vehicle. Yep. Uh, and this is actually much more recent history than people may realize. It certainly is more recent than I realized. Uh, if you had asked me prior to researching this topic, I would have guessed that the summit of Everest had actually been reached in the late 19th century. It does seem kind of like a late 19th century story. Well, and that's where the seeds are sown, yeah. for sure. But no. Uh, so today we're actually talking about how Everest became this ultimate climbing challenge and how it was first conquered by a beekeeper and a Nepalese guide. So we're first going to start off by covering the geography pretty quickly. And I should also say this one's going to be a two-parter because there were it took a lot of time and effort. Yes, this is an example. Often when we have two-parters, it's something that we didn't intend to have a two-part episode no. when we started. But the farther we got into it, the more we realized we needed more time than we had. Yeah, there's just... And even so, I feel like... You know, a lot is edited out of this. Like, certainly you could expand probably any one of the expeditions and make it its own episode because there are these really detailed and intense write-ups of each expedition and all of the various things that happened. But this time, we're going to mostly be covering the time from when it was recognized by the British, because certainly people that live near it had known about it much longer than that, and how it became an important uh, goal for many people. And then we'll kind of get to early efforts. And then in the second episode, we'll do post-World War II through to the magic moment. And even a little bit after that. So heads up, that's where we're going. Uh, So first, we're going to cover a little bit of the geography of the area. Mount Everest is part of the Himalayan range, which separates the Tibetan Plateau from the Indian Plains to the south. And the Himalayan Wall is approximately 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers long and about 300 miles or 480 kilometers wide. So in terms of like one side of the range to the other side of the range rather than the length that it runs. Right. Everest sits right on the border between Tibet and Nepal, just east of Kathmandu. And the mountain range was formed by the shifting of the Indian tectonic plate pushing against the Asian plate. And that process, by the way, is ongoing. So the Himalayas get a little bit taller every year still. Uh, the summit of Everest is recognized as the highest point on Earth. It's just a little bit higher than 29,000 feet or 8,800 meters. And it's going up incrementally each year. Tiny bits. Yes. <laughs> Not like meters at a yes. time. The climate is anything but hospitable. Temperatures can drop to negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus 62 Celsius. At the summit, the air has less than a third the amount of oxygen that it contains at sea level. And because of the extremes of the climate, it can take more than a month to climb the mountain. And a lot of that is so the body has time to adjust to this altitude. High-altitude cerebral edema, which is fluid accumulating in the brain, is a serious risk, and it can not only make climbers feel weak and lethargic, 
It can also cause confusion and lack of coordination, and climbers have been known to start talking gibberish and exhibit really poor judgment. And I actually have a a personal anecdotal thing about altitude sickness that I discovered after I was reading on the notes for this, which is my dad is career military. He's career Air Force. Uh, and when I was telling him about this podcast and that I was working on it, he started telling me about this crazy altitude sickness test that they would do when he was in the Air Force, where they would take everybody up really, really high in a plane, and you kind of had a buddy with you, and half of the guys had to take off their oxygen masks, and then they were given a quick, simple, four-question test, and they had to answer it as quickly as they could, and if they started getting wonky, it was their buddy's job to put the oxygen back on them, because they were getting altitude sickness. And he was describing to me what it was like to kind of have that inkling of, I know something's not right here. He said, you know, you'd write the first two questions fine. And then the third one, your pen would trail off the page, but you'd think you were still doing it, except you would get a flash of, I'm not doing it. Oh, no, I'm doing it. Uh, and it was just sort of a fascinating insight into how, like, your brain is tricking you as you go to think, you're okay, you're okay. No, you're not okay. No, I'm okay. No, you're not. I can imagine how frightening that is when you are yeah, 29,000 feet in the air. Well, and I think... <laughs> Altitude sickness kind of gets a, a lot of the press as far as the health effects of trying to climb this mountain. Yeah. There are so many others. Like, oh, yeah. The air is so dry that people will cough until they break their own ribs from coughing. Yeah. And- I was watching a documentary while working on this, and one guy was talking about how his the air was so dry and cold that even in his boots, the skin on his toes started to crack open and expose yeah. the bone underneath. Ugh. There were other very gross things that I won't go into. You can go to the Mummification podcast for gross. Right. But yeah, I mean, the body is just really put through its paces when you're getting up at these altitudes. Um, just reaching base camp on the Nepalese side of the mountain can take about 10 days. And then normally climbers will make a series of stepped climbs. Like they'll go up a bit and then they retreat a little bit. And uh, that'll repeat kind of as part of this altitude um, acclimation. And they keep doing that and before there's like the big push move to the summit. Yeah. It didn't get its famous name until 1856, when it was named after Sir George Everest, Surveyor General of British India from 1830 to 1843, who, by the way, never actually saw Everest the mountain. The people living around it, of course, had known about it for a a long time before the British put this moniker to it and considered it holy. To the people living on the Tibetan side of the mountain, it was Chomolongma, which means goddess mother. And then the Nepalese people to the south of it called it Sagarmatha. Prior to being named Everest, British called it uh, Peak 15. And I think this to me is why I this, this feels like a late 19th century story to me, because it has this whole thread of British colonialism going yes. through it in India. Uh Especially. Yeah. I mean, as I said, its roots are definitely there. And it it really sort of loomed in British consciousness in terms of the um, the surveyors that were doing this for quite some time. Uh, And it, it really was that sort of empire mentality that kind of, I think, fostered the the it planted the seed and fostered the initial ideas of we're going to go after that thing. Right. Uh Even the Sherpa people who lived at the base of the mountain had never tried to climb it prior to the British fascination with it. But once Everest had been identified and named, its allure became completely irresistible to explorers. 
uh, as mountaineering, which was still in its infancy in the late 19th century, grew in popularity among thrill seekers and people who sort of had this desire to see what they could do and what they could conquer. In 1913, Captain John Knoll, who was building on the work of previous explorers who had been trying to unlock the secrets of this mountain, got closer to it than any outsider had, allegedly coming within 40 miles of it. There were a number of uh, political issues going on at the time. A revolution had just ended China's Qing dynasty, and Tibet was making a move for independence, while Russia and Britain were engaged in what was called the Great Game, as they made strategic moves for power in Central Asia. All of these complex relationships among nations made it difficult for British expeditions to get close to Everest, and Noel was allegedly shot at by a Tibetan guard. Uh, after a survey and expedition report was given to the Royal Geographical Society in London in March of 1919 by Captain John Knoll, World War I had actually delayed the presentation until then. So there were several years gap between when he actually went on this expedition and when he was able to really meet with them and discuss it in detail. And in this report, he detailed the size and the scope of the mountain, as well as the cultural and political landscape immediately surrounding it. Uh, and as a consequence of all of this information, the Mount Everest Committee was founded. And this committee, which was funded and staffed as a cooperative effort, primarily between the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society, which were both British organizations, was focused solely on ascending Everest, like even though it had been talked about kind of in adventurer circles and in the geographical society, this was like the first time that they really, there was pen to paper, there was a plan, there was a committee founded, we're going to Everest. In 1920, the MEC negotiated with His Holiness the 13th Dalai Lama, who gave special permission to the committee so climbers could uh, access the north side of the mountain via Tibet. And throughout the early history of Everest ascent attempts, the MEC was frequently in talks with Tibet to try to get permission for each of their climbs. And expeditions to climb the mountain began almost immediately after uh, they got this permission. So when the Mount Everest Committee launched their ambitious campaign, the highest a human had ever climbed was 24,000 feet, which is uh, 7,315 meters, in the Karakoram Range, which sits at the border of China and Pakistan. No one actually knew if anyone could survive the conditions beyond that height. So they kind of knew they were throwing people into, they didn't kind of know, they knew they were throwing people into a potential death situation. So before we get to really the the big expeditions, do you want to take a moment and have a word from our sponsor? Sure. All righty. All right. So getting back to Everest, we're going to start with the first official British mission. And this is in 1921. And this first expedition was really reconnaissance only. Uh, the effort was led by Brigadier General Charles Granville Bruce, who was a man who had actually first discussed this idea of climbing Everest several decades earlier at the Royal Geographic Society. Uh, Bruce, who went by the nickname Bruiser, was a veteran climber and he was a fluent Nepali speaker. So the team mapped approach routes to the mountain and climbed it to about 23,000 feet, which is about 7,000 meters. But they had no intention of trying to get to the summit at this point. Yeah, I mean, they really were, as much as there was this um, desire and, you know, passion to get to the summit, they were going about it in a pretty methodical way. They were trying to be very careful and gather as much information as they could. 
So uh, in 1922, the next year, an expedition that was led by George Ingle Finch made the first real go at Everest. And George Finch had been born in Australia, but raised in Switzerland. uh, And he had attended Geneva University while studying the physical sciences. Thanks to his chemistry knowledge, Finch was actually a pioneer in developing the oxygen that was used not only on his climb, but on many, many expeditions after it. Major General John Jeffrey Bruce, who was cousin to Charles Granville Bruce, accompanied Finch, although he wasn't a mountaineer and had never made a climb before. And this trek, as well as many after it, traveled along the Tibetan Plateau and followed the East Rongbuk Glacier, uh, attempting to ascend Everest from what's called the North Pole. Despite Jeffrey Bruce's lack of experience, this team set a record by ascending to 27,300 feet, which is about 8,320 meters, although they did not get to the summit. After they returned to London, uh, Finch actually had a falling out with the Mount Everest Committee, and he never climbed in the Himalayas again. He did remain involved with mountaineering, though, and he eventually became president of the Alpine Club, which was one of the groups that originally formed the MEC. The 1924 Mallory and Irvine expedition is famous in large part because of the tragedy associated with it. Two lives were lost in this quest for the summit. George Herbert Lee Mallory, who was 38 at the time, was an extremely accomplished climber. He had been on the previous Mount Everest committee expeditions, and he was considered the most skilled climber of their group. On the other hand, Andrew Coman Irvine, who went by Sandy, wasn't terribly experienced as a mountaineer, and he was also very young. He was only 21. He was really fit and agile, however, and he was originally chosen for the mission to assist the oxygen officer, Noel O'Dell. And Odell served as geologist as well as oxygen officer on the expedition, and he was actually the last to see Mallory and Irvine alive. Despite Irvine's lack of experience, due to his physical fitness, he was chosen by Mallory to partner with him on this final upward surge. Irvine's other skill that made him the perfect partner was his knowledge and dexterity with the oxygen tanks that are used on the mountain. Yeah, we think of oxygen tanks now, I think, as being this thing that gets shipped to you and it's made in a factory and they're they're well made. And they really were very fiddly, particularly at this point. They would have problems with the lines. They would, you know, need to have things replaced on the go. Well, and even modern tanks, they don't make it equivalent to being anywhere near sea level. Yeah, it's like barely taking the edge off of the whole oxygen deprivation situation. Yeah, and they had to be extremely careful with their use of it because they had limited amounts that they could carry with them and limited time in which they could just physically make it up and down the mountain. And they had to kind of meet out their oxygen usage to try to perfectly align with what they were going to need as they went. Uh, and it's worth noting that on previous expeditions, Mallory had been against the use of oxygen. He wanted to summit without aid, uh, but he really began to change his mind this time around. Irvine, who, as we said, was expert at dealing with the notoriously problematic and heavy tanks, had also found a way to revise them to make them five pounds lighter. I think I read a thing and I didn't put it in these notes that that was basically a change of they had been 35 pounds and it brought them down to 30. So it wasn't like they were, you know, light and breezy to carry. That's still a lot of weight. That's an enormous when you're exhausted and can't breathe very well. Yeah. So already, two pushes to the summit without oxygen tanks by the expedition had failed, reaching only 28,125 feet, 
So they tried this third attempt aided with oxygen. Uh, And in the early afternoon on June 8th of 1924, Noel O'Dell, who was trailing the two men in a support position, saw the pair near the base of the summit pyramid. And this is the last time that they were seen alive. A snowstorm blew in and Odell fell back to the North Pole and kept watch for movement from above. And after two days with no sign of Mallory or Irvine, he uh, climbed up to the tent they had left to make their summit charge. But they weren't there. And there were no signs that they had ever made it back to the camp. Odell thought they had been sure to summit when he saw them last, as they were going very strong when he spotted them. Although we do not know to this day for certain if they ever did reach the top of the mountain. The other thing that most people remember about this expedition is a famous quote from Mallory. While touring the United States on a fundraising tour for the trip in 1923, a New York Times journalist asked him why he wanted to climb Everest, and his response was, because it's there. And that's usually all you hear. I mean, that's famously quoted. Well, and when you said you were doing these notes about how horrible it is to try to do it, and you were like, why do people do this? And I said, because it's there. <laughs> because that's one of the sort of sound bites that we've heard through the years. Uh, and the quote has been criticized as everything from being callous, egocentric, flippant, and even as evidence of this mindset of ongoing British imperialism. Yeah, it's pretty much impossible to talk about this whole thing without acknowledging how rooted it is in British imperialism. Oh, yeah. Uh, however... There was actually more to this response. That isn't the only thing he said. <laughs> it wasn't like he dropped the mic and walked out. It does sound like a <laughs> mic drop kind of quote. Mallory went on to say, Everest is the highest mountain in the world, and no man has reached its summit. Its existence is a challenge. The answer is instinctive, a part, I suppose, of man's desire to conquer the universe. So still a little egocentric, but also you could see the route that it's he's kind of acknowledging that there is this psychological drive that we have. Well, and you could also make the same kind of arguments for exploring things like space and the ocean. Exactly. And keep in mind at this point that both of the poles had already been reached and virtually every corner of the world had been explored. So to explorer adventurers who, you know, were definitely a type of person that was uh, very much in the public eye at this point, Everest was really the last unturned stone on the globe. Yeah, they they forgot the ocean. I know. That's why I keep thinking, like, but what about below? But they weren't as excited about the water, I guess. I am really excited about the ocean. I wish there would be a big ocean exploration. Well, there's lots of them. Perhaps we'll talk about them in the future. In 1975, a Chinese climber found a body at 27,000 feet, which is... 8,230 meters, which may have been Irvine. And then an expedition in May of 1999 found Mallory's frozen corpse on the mountain at 26,760 feet, which is 8,157 meters. So at this point, they'd been on the mountain for 75 years, and there have been recent expeditions in 2010 and 2011 to search for Irvine. Those have not been successful. Yeah, they want to confirm whether or not that Chinese climber actually found the body of Irvine. Uh, And there's also a camera that the pair took with them that was borrowed from another member of their team that still sits somewhere on Everest. Uh, If it were to be found, it could be the piece of evidence that people need to determine whether or not they ever reached the summit. Yeah, and there's been a lot of theorizing about whether they did or didn't based on where their body, like where Mallory's body was found. Yeah, um... 
you know, Mallory's body was definitely injured, although found so late that any number of things could have transpired uh, in the the various years. So it's still a bit of a mystery and one that if you look at any like Everest message boards or discussion groups or anything is still hotly debated, which yeah. I kind of love. Um, before we get to the next expedition, we're going to take a quick break and hear from a word about our sponsor. So let's return to our subject at hand. Mm-hmm. So a 1933 expedition headed by Hugh Rutledge was unsuccessful at reaching the summit. Rutledge, who was in his late 40s, was kind of an unusual choice for the team leader. He wouldn't really be able to make any summit pushes, and he walked with a limp from an old injury. Two summit attempts were made during this expedition uh, and reached a height of 28,120 feet, or 8,565 meters. And a third go at the summit was actually abandoned pretty early on. They realized that conditions were not going to be successful, so that pretty much wrapped up the whole trip. Another year later, in 1934, an expedition that was not mounted by the MEC was undertaken by Maurice Wilson. Wilson, uh, pretty foolishly, tried to summit Everest alone, despite having no experience in glacier climbing. And you can imagine how that ended. He died on the mountain. Yeah, the night before Wilson left for this Everest adventure... Uh, a British paper called his plan, quote, an elaborate suicide, which turned out to be all too true. It apparently also really irritated him. And he was something of like a, I don't even know if daredevil is the right word, but he would get a wild hair and do things he had never done before. Like, I'm going to fly a plane across, I think, the Alps. Like, I know he he had never piloted. He just jumped in. I need to fact check all of this. But I mean, reading about him, he just did lots of crazy stuff like that. It does seem a little like he had a death wish. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. I'm like, why when there's cozy home? <laughs> well, and I think the, I've seen like the, the, the big IMAX movie about Everest, uh-huh. which is about uh, that summer a few years ago when so many people died. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning of it, I was like, maybe I could climb Everest oh, one no. day. And within about, I don't know, six, six minutes, I was like, oh, this is never a thing I will for ever me. do. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think it's beautiful and I understand the allure, but no. No. In 1935, Eric Earl Shipton led another expedition and he had been on many Everest climbs already. And he was on one of the summit pushes during the 1933 Rutledge expedition. In 1935, this was another reconnaissance mission that was meant to gather information to prepare for a summit attempt the next year. And according to his write-up, he had several specific goals. Yeah, the expedition was aiming to collect information about monsoon and snow conditions. Uh, they wanted to look at possible alternate routes to the summit. They wanted to report on ice formations on the North Coal so proper equipment choices could be made. They were going to try out new mission personnel. They were going to experiment with food and equipment provisions to make sure they were carrying exactly the right amount, not overweighing themselves, not being underprepared. And they were going to perform stereophotogrammic surveying of the surrounding area of Everest so that they could expand on the survey work that was done by the first reconnaissance mission in 1921. So at this point, they had had several missions and they hadn't made it. So they kind of were like, let's regroup, do some more recon and put together another report. This expedition is noteworthy for the presence of one of the porters, Tenzing Norgay. 
And while the 1935 trip was his first Everest climb, he would become a hugely important figure in Everest history. And this expedition also found uh, Maurice Wilson's body and diary. So the gentleman who went at this alone was discovered by these people. In 1936, Rutledge led a bid for the summit a second time. While he'd already led one team, the Mount Everest Committee appointing him as leader was a little bit controversial. During his earlier expedition, his leadership had been questioned, and many felt that someone both physically stronger and more assertive would be a better choice. Although he seemed to be universally liked. Yeah, everybody seemed to like him. They just thought he really wasn't the ideal man to lead a team going up a mountain that was extremely physically demanding needed really strong leadership. It's like, he's a nice guy, but he's not really for this. Uh, and this is also interesting because it's the first time that radio sets were included as part of the equipment. So prior to that, there had been no radio communications done during any of the expeditions. This expedition, which once again included Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, had to be terminated early because of an early monsoon, and they didn't make any summit pushes. A 1938 attempt was headed up by Harold William Tillman, who had also been on the 1935 reconnaissance expedition. And despite having had a lot of difficulty with acclimatizing during that 1935 trip, Tillman was able to climb up to 27,000 feet, or 8,230 meters, taking a route along the Northwest Ridge without the aid of oxygen. As with the 1936 expedition, this mission was cut short due to bad weather conditions. Noel Odell, the geologist who had made the last exchange with Mallory and Irvine, was also on this expedition. And then uh, world affairs kind of got in the way of this exploration. Uh, world War II really put a stop to the expeditions, in part because the political landscape made permissions to enter the areas you would need to access the mountain almost impossible to obtain, and also because British resources were obviously focused elsewhere. So that's where we're going to pause. Yeah. We'll come back in part two to talk about what happened after the war was over. Yeah, because we haven't gotten to the summit yet. We really haven't, (laughs) in spite of many years of trying. Um, Reconnaissance missions, the whole nine. It's uh, so fascinating to me to think of this ongoing effort of just throwing people at it over and over, trying to get this one thing. And you have to wonder, like, at some point... I'm sure they were discussing it. Like, what did this mean to them and why were they so intent on it? But yeah, I think that answer is probably different for a lot of people even today that do it. But do you also have some listener mail? I do indeed. This one is from Ellen and she says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I was pleasantly surprised when I saw your podcast on Crown Prince Sado. I was a bit of a history junkie during my childhood in Korea. Sato's tragic fate is such a popular story in Korea, and it has been constantly retold with creative license in Korean literature and even TV series. I thought it might be interesting to hear your perspective, especially as someone who had not had exposure to this story before. I thought I knew the story pretty well, but your podcast was full of surprises. I may be overgeneralizing here a bit, but Prince Sato is often portrayed in Korea as a victim of political power play, and some historians even go so far as to say that Lady Hong was involved in conspiring against the prince. But all of the details that you've included in the podcast really seem to make the case that Sato was a deeply troubled serial killer. It prompted me to do a little bit more research, and the main supporting evidence for this conspiracy theory seems to be the obituary which was written by Zhongzhou, Sato's biological son. Here, Zhongzhou portrays Sato as a bright prince who rolled out good policies and emphasizes that political factions at the time drove a wedge between Sato and his father Yongzhou. 
Prince Sado was also posthumously given the title of King Zhangzhou in 1899. I just wonder why they would honor him like that, given all the terrible things he's done. I'm still a bit unsure of how to make sense out of all of these theories. But thank you for re-sparking my interest in history. I had a good time looking up and evaluating various theories and ideas surrounding Prince Sado. Hope you do more similar podcasts like this one. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting story. And some of that came up in my research where he has been sort of framed in different ways throughout history. But as sort of the evidence has come to pass, and as I said, his uh, widow's biography was hugely important in in kind of revealing what was really going on, which I don't even think is entirely at odds with the way she's describing him as being portrayed a lot. Right. Um, I, I, I don't think he was inherently intentionally a bad person. I think he was just mentally ill and it was two sides of his psyche that were fighting against each other at all times. It's a sad story. It is. It's also just fascinating. And I, I love hearing about Asian history. And so it was nice to get the perspective from someone that grew up in Korea and spent time with the story from uh, the childhood perspective on up, which is really cool. So thank you, Ellen, because that was awesome. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you should do so. You can do that at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to learn more about uh, what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and enter the word Everest in the search bar. And one of the things that will come up is, are there dead bodies on Mount Everest? The short answer is yes. Yes, so many <laughs> of them. We've already talked about a couple of them, but there are many, many more. And a lot of other stuff, too. Oh, yes. We're going to talk about that in episode two. Uh, so we hope to see you back here. And in the meantime, if you'd like to research almost anything you can think about, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.